The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. All right, boys and girls, and welcome to the Tuesday edition of Brutal Nation. I'm your host, Scott Alexander, and right across from me is the guest host for the week, the one of the only, the Sasquatch herself, Tammy, the Squatch Underwood. Say hi, Tam Tam. Hi, everybody. All righty. So, you told me this is going to be one oh. long... Yeah, it's three a three-parter, par- three parter, but it's worth it. Sweet, I can't wait to hear it. Yeah, you, I think, are going to be like... Oh my goodness, this guy is psycho. Sweet. Yeah. So anyways, this one is about Joseph and Michael Callinger. Um, If nobody knows who they are, um, it's you're you're not like alone because I didn't really know who they were. Um, But it's a man who he was so freaking arrogant, so arrogant that he exploited his child into concocting this hoax to dominate the world. Yeah, are you ready for that one? Jesus Christ. Yeah, he he was so... I mean, and he's from the New Jersey area, so he operated in New Jersey and I think Pennsylvania and New York. So, um, yeah, so here we go. Um, and then, like, in, like, I think it's episode two or three that he, like, makes up some story that is so far-fetched. But um, there are several serial killers throughout history that have claimed they murdered people because God ordered them to do so, right? Psychologists refer to these people as visionary killers. One of the most infamous visionary killers was David Berkowitz, the son of Sam. Uh, Yeah, and isn't he up for parole shortly? Oh, I don't know. We should look into that. I'd heard something about that. He's up for parole or some shit. Yeah, because he's the one that said that he got a message from God from that he was the son of this dog to kill these people. Remember? Yeah. Oh, I'm I'm very familiar with Berkowitz. Yeah. Well, some people aren't, so I was just like, you know. That is why we experimented on the Jews, Miss (laughs) Daddy. We knew that there would be a Berkowitz someday. Thank you, Dieter. You know, I missed you, Dieter. We miss you too, Tommy. <laughs> Why don't you help me get the Jews into the uh, well, showers? Because even though I come from German descent, I I I I like um, spurn that part of me. <laughs> what would your uncle Adolf say? <laughs> oh, I'm just yeah. saying. You know what? You know that's a big fear of mine. <laughs> it's okay, Miss Tommy. Please continue. We are listening. Anyways. So we've even featured some on this show. For instance, in episode 70 on October 1st of 2021, we presented the case of Richard Trenton Chase. Remember the vampire of Sacramento? Oh, oh. Yeah, dude, he was. Whoa. And then in episode 164 on March 3rd of of this year, we presented Herbert Mullen, who thought he could stop. What? Another uh, natural disaster by killing people. Hey, I'm just saying when he uh, was killing people, no natural disasters. And when he stopped... Yeah, but it wouldn't have happened if his dad would have, you know, performed fellatio on him when he was, what, six? Yeah, well, there you go. That's bad parenting. (laughs) Apparently, you got to blow your kids. I've never blown mine, but hey, what do I know? I'm a bad parent. (laughs) We know, but I don't think that's why. (laughs) Anyways, these individuals often have a mental illness, typically some form of psychosis that causes them to hallucinate. They are generally categorized by the categorized by the characteristics of a quote disorganized serial killer as defined by the FBI 
In other words, they aren't meticulous planners with an established ideal victimology. Their victims tend to be random and follow a logic only they can understand. However, there have also been individuals who have faked psychosis in an attempt to avoid prosecution. Two of the most infamous killers who did that were Kenneth Bianchi, the Hillside Strangler, and John Wayne Gacy, the Killer Clown. Oh, in fact, Bianchi, we have to mention his cousin. That's who he killed with. Yeah, but Um, Bianchi, his cousin. um, Oh, God, what was his cousin's name? I just had on the tip of my tongue. I can't fucking remember his cousin's name. Yeah, but his cousin never claimed psychosis. No, true, true, true. Because his cousin went on to try to kill by himself, remember? Right, right, right. Yeah. So, but then, in fact, we've even featured an individual that fell into that category in episode 200. You guys covered Anthony Sowell, the Cleveland Strangler. Mm-hmm. Remember? I do. Yeah. Yet, until I dug into this case here, I had never seen a person go to such extreme measures to convince people they weren't psychopaths, but were psychotic. Because there's a difference. The case of Joseph Callinger, a.k.a. the Shoemaker, and his son Michael Callinger is shocking, to say the least. Joseph histrionics in court rivals those of the case we featured in bonus episode 7 on April 2nd, Andre Chikatilo. The oh, yeah. Reaper. Remember, yeah, remember when him, yeah. he stood up in court and threw down his pants and said, see, it doesn't even work. How can I, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yep. Yeah. But Joseph histrionics were far beyond that. So the Callinger case is so bizarre that we barely considered it down. We barely condensed it down to a three-parter. I had to force it down. Even then, there's so much more information that we're going to include in the blog so you won't miss out on it. Hold onto your seats and try to follow along as I present the wild case of Joseph and Michael Callinger. Right. Yeah. So it's going to start in 1975, but that's kind of like towards the end. Um, On January 8th, 1975, sometime in the early afternoon, the police were responding to a call at a house in Leonia, New Jersey, on Glenwood Avenue. Leonia is a small town located about maybe two miles west of the George Washington Bridge into New York. Apparently a neighbor by the name of Lucy Bevacqua. Yeah. That's a hell of a name. Yeah, and it's spelled B-E-V-A-C-Q-U-A, Bevacqua called dispatch and told them a woman was standing outside the residence screaming hysterically. So the officers assumed they were responding to a typical 5150 call, which is police go for crazy. Right. Um, so the woman in question was Edwina Romaine. She had emerged from her house hopping like a two-leg rabbit, you know, just on her back legs. Screaming at the top of her lungs. And Lucy couldn't understand most of what Edwina was yelling, but she caught the words gun and basement. Okay? Here comes Peter Cottontail hopping down the bunny trail. Oh, wrong one. I was going to say, what are you going to say about gun and basement in that song? (laughs) Nothing. Okay. Then she fell to the ground, and that's when Lucy realized she was hopping because her legs were bound together at the ankles. Edwina wouldn't stop screaming, but the rest of what might have been words didn't come out coherently. Therefore, Lucy could only think of one thing to do to help her neighbor, and that was call the police. Right? Mm -hmm. So Sergeant Robert McDougal, (laughs) that's a 
cop name if I've ever seen. No, one. that's a super cop name. <laughs> it's like Crime Dog McGruff. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I will solve the problem. <laughs> I'm Officer McDougal. Yeah. So he arrived on the scene. And he approached Edwina in an attempt to get more information from her. When he was standing beside her, she looked up at him. And when she realized he was a police officer and not somebody to attack her, she calmed down enough to say, my God, they're killing my family. Holy shit. Yeah. Through her hyperventilated breaths, Edwina began to tell McDougal what had happened. According to her, she had invited some family and friends over that day. And as they were all sitting around, two men burst into their house. And it's actually not quite that way, but this is her version, okay? She said they were armed with knives and guns, and she was sure someone in her house was being murdered. As McDougal removed the bindings from her ankles, he radioed for backup. Then, before his backup arrived, he walked towards the open back door with caution. He slowly stepped inside and walked through the hallway, which led him to the kitchen, and from there, the living room. When he peered into the living room, it looked as if somebody had been in there searching for something. There were items all over the floor, and all the cords from the lamps and vacuum cleaner and iron had been cut. God damn. Yeah, he became even more concerned because he was pretty sure the cords were cut. The, cor- the cut cords were used to bind more victims. You know? And so he walked the short distance to the stairs, and as he was about ready to climb to the second floor, he saw her hand rise up from behind the couch. Now, that would have freaked me out, but okay. Out of the corner of his eye, he quickly un... un I put upholstered, but it's unholstered. <laughs> Damn autocorrect. His revolver pointed it towards the couch and ordered the individual behind the sofa to come out slowly. Cautiously, a woman emerged with her hands up. She, too, was hyperventilating so hard that she couldn't even utter a word. And no matter what he did to try and calm her down to tell him what happened, she couldn't stop crying and heaving. He noticed that she was bound at the ankles, too, and the only word he could make out was upstairs. He freed her from her bindings and ordered her to exit the house. As the woman was headed outside, he heard what he thought was a person either in pain or extreme fear. He didn't have any idea what he was walking into, so he kept his gun at the ready. But it goes against protocol for an officer to approach a situation like that without backup. Right, right, right. But he was under the impression, his whole thought was, if somebody was being murdered, it's my duty to stop it. Well, it makes sense, you know. Yeah. You don't want people to be murdered. Exactly, exactly. So once he determined the noise had come from a specific bedroom, he slowly opened the door and entered. When he realized what the noise was, he secured his weapon. There were three people in the room, and it was obvious the two adult females and the single young male were not perpetrators. They were victims. All of them were completely nude. One of the young women was lying on the floor with her hands tied together. There was also so much tape covering her head and face, he was surprised she was able to breathe. Jesus Christ. The other female was bound, lying on top of the bed with a young boy pressed against, naked young boy pressed against her side. As the sergeant worked to take their bindings off, he asked them to tell him what was going on. They said a man had come into the house brandishing a gun and a knife, and he's the one that tied them up. However, he wasn't alone. He had a young boy with him. Right about that time, McDougal's backup arrived on on the scene, and he walked out, and McDougal walked outside to talk to him. They decided to start by asking questions of the two women standing outside. They both said that there were more people in the house and that they were in the basement. 
So the officers entered the house and started to go down the dark basement with their guns at the ready. Detective Richard Quinton was at the front, so he called off for anyone downstairs to come out slowly, but nobody replied. They found the light switch, flipped it on. The first thing they saw was a young female lying on her back against the wall. She was wearing what was once a white dress, and she had shoes on. They noticed that her hands were bound at the wrists, and her dress was soaked with blood. When they got closer, it was obvious she was deceased. Someone had cut her throat from ear to ear. Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah. Man. He's doing this with his kid in tow? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Fuck. I'll let you know right now. The kid's 12. What a... This guy is already a real peach to me. Oh, it gets worse. Just what a fucking peach. Mm-hmm. Then, suddenly, they heard a man's voice groaning from somewhere in the area. And they kind of tensed up because they didn't see him when they came down. So they didn't know if, the, if they were about to face a killer or not. So they turned around with caution to find the source and relaxed because it was a man was another victim. He was lying on the floor next to the furnace and his hands were tied behind his back and his feet were bound at the ankles. But his bottoms, like his pants and his underwear, were pulled down to his ankles. Right. So like the women upstairs, he had been taped, wrapped around his head, covering his eyes, nose and mouth. Other than that, it appeared as if he was unharmed. Hmm. Yeah. So as soon as the officers freed him from his bindings, he asked them about the other people who had been in the house with him. According to him, there were eight. Now, you probably counted seven, right? I actually wasn't counting. Oh, my gosh. The woman out in the yard, the woman in the front room, the three up in the bedroom, five, the woman downstairs who was deceased, and the man, right? Yeah, okay, okay. that makes sense, yeah. Come to find out, that's what I counted too, and I kept going, where the fuck, right? It would come out in a minute, but it was a invalid grandma who was in a room who couldn't walk or get out of bed. Oh, man, don't attack so, granny. No, they left her alone. Oh, thank goodness, because that's my dating Yeah, you right don't there. hear nothing more except for a brief mention of her later. Yeah, because I was like, they never mentioned her in this. <laughs> that, that's your dating pool? <laughs> oh, yeah. So, um, let's see here. So, um, let's see. They informed him that everyone except the young woman in the basement with him was free and appeared to be unharmed. They learned the man's name was Frank Welby. And as they ushered him outside past the body of the murdered woman, he passed by her corpse. He expressed his horror that he had been, she had been killed practically right beside him. And he didn't even know because the furnace was so loud he couldn't hear anything. Criminy. Yeah. So once everyone was safely outside, the officers returned to the house to conduct their preliminary search and realized there was nobody left in the house, except for the woman upstairs, like I said, but they don't really mention her. And as they questioned the survivors, they found out that they didn't know who these people were. They radioed in a be on the lookout or bolo and turned back to the victims. They had questions and they hoped they had more answers. Now... It started out as a routine day. Dee Dee Wiseman took her four-year-old son to visit her parents, Edwina and DeWitt Romaine. Now, DeWitt had, had just had a heart attack, so he was still in the hospital. And that morning, Edwina was going to visit him, and Dee Dee has two sisters. Their names are Randy and Retta. They're 21-year-old twins. They still lived at home. And Retta was spending time with her boyfriend, Frank Welby, and um, Randy was headed out the door when Dee Dee arrived to go visit their father at the hospital. Since her 90-year-old grandmother, this is the only time she's mentioned, basically, lived there as well, she was bedridden, so somebody had to be at home at all times to take care of her. 
right? Mm -hmm. So Dee Dee volunteered to do it until her mother returned. Now, Dee Dee remembered, you know, at approximately 1.30 p.m. that she had looked out the window and saw a man with darker skin and hair walking down Greenwood Avenue. And he had this skinny little boy with him with longer hair that appeared to be kind of dirty blonde in color. And the two were holding hands. Now, she claimed that she had also seen them a little after lunch, um, but she didn't know who they were. They were just, she just knew that they weren't anybody she recognized from the neighborhood where her parents lived. Since the man appeared to be somewhat scruffy, she didn't think he was a salesman of any kind. However, she also didn't really give the pair much thought, you know? Yeah, it's like a dad and a son walking. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's parks in the neighborhood. It could be just that innocent. So she was shocked when the two of them suddenly appeared on the front porch and knocked on the door. Since it wasn't common for door-to-door salesmen to call on her parents' neighborhood, she knew it was strange that the man and the boy had come to the house. When she opened the door to see what they wanted, she noticed they were dressed in what she thought were just ordinary clothes. Even then, they made her feel just a little uneasy. In fact, she also noticed like a strange odor coming from him, the older man. The smell of death. That she couldn't identify as a smell she knew. And you'll find out later why. So once she opened the door, the man introduced himself as a John Hancock salesman. For those who don't know, it was a life insurance company back in the day. I think it might still be. And he asked her if she had anyone else there with her. She didn't know how to respond, so she kindly asked him to leave. Rather than turn around and leave, he began forcing his way past her into the house. The young boy kind of followed along behind him silently. Dee Dee was shocked, but she still attempted to stop him, and the two engaged in kind of a struggle. The entire time, the boy stood by in silence and just watched. Suddenly, the man pulled out a gun, but that didn't stop her from trying to get him out the door. She was like, you know what? You're not coming in this damn house, bitch. She's badass. <laughs> you know? But then, all of a sudden, her four-year-old son, Bobby, entered the living room. When he saw his mom in a struggle with the man, he began screaming. And that drew her attention away from the intruder long enough for him to get the upper hand. And when he pointed his gun at her son, she stopped resisting because he was afraid he would shoot her child. Which I would have too. I'd been like, you know what? I would probably jumped in front of the gun. (laughs) So the man took advantage of that opportunity to enter the house and the boy followed, closing and locking the door behind them. Damn. Yeah. And you'll come to find out that they don't really lock this door. You know? So, I bet they did now, huh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, suddenly the man snatched Dee Dee by her hair and informed her that she had better do exactly what he said because he was going to rob the place. Bobby didn't stop screaming and Dee Dee began to feel helpless, especially since she was also concerned about her grandma lying upstairs in bed. Right? So despite the fact that she had already seen his face, the man suddenly demanded that she close her eyes and not look at her. Look at him. He's a smart one. Yeah, it's like, hello, genius. You walked up to her door and knocked. So anyways, um, uh, right before she shut her eyes, she witnessed the boy come into the room behind her. Not only that, she noticed that the man suddenly had a knife in his hand, right? It's like, so he like switched out the gun gun for a knife. After Dee Dee had her eyes closed, the man demanded for her to tell him if anyone else was in the house. And she didn't know what else to do but tell him the truth, you know, because she didn't want her son or her grandma to be harmed. 
Right, so, makes sense. Yeah, so she said, yeah, uh, you know, my son's here and my grandma's upstairs, but she's bedridden. So he grabbed her by the hair, drug her upstairs by her head, and Bobby was still screaming, so he grabbed a hold of her and ran up beside her. And even though Dee Dee told the intruder that her grandmother was bedridden, he had to make sure that the woman couldn't get out of bed. Once he did that, he dragged Dee Dee into the other room, ordered her to sit down on the bed before he grabbed the tape and began winding it around her head, making sure to cover her eyes. Every time he circled the tape around her head, she grew more and more frightened. When he got to the area of her mouth, he took a cloth, stuffed it in her mouth before he taped it. Once he was satisfied with the way he had wrapped her head, he forced her to take off all of her clothes. She was so frightened that if she complied, he would rape her while her son watched. Frustrated with her hesitation, he removed her clothing himself. As soon as he had all of her clothes off, he again asked her if she was expecting anyone to return. Still fearing for their safety, she thought if she was honest with them, he would get intimidated and leave. So she said, yes. She nodded, yes. Mm. Rather than turn around and leave, he forced her hands behind her back so that he could tape them together. When he removed the ring she had, then he removed the ring she had on her fingers. The man made sure she was defenseless. He taped her head so that she couldn't see or speak. He removed all of her clothing and he bound her wrist behind her back. She had no way to fight back. However, he wasn't finished. He pushed her back onto the bed and bound her ankles as well. She could tell he didn't use tape that time, but it didn't feel like rope. It must have been some type of cord. As she was tying, he was tying her up, Dee Dee heard him tell the boy to go back downstairs and make sure all the doors were locked. That didn't concern her as much as much as she didn't know where her son was. Suddenly she heard him tell the man to stop t- taking his clothes off because the guy was taking the boy's clothes off. Right? God damn. Yeah. A few minutes later, she felt his, his naked little body pressed up against her. So at least he um, felt, you know, a little bit, she felt a little bit more secure knowing that her son was right there. Right. Oh, totally. Yeah. So she tried to comprehend that the man was, what the man was doing or what she wanted. What the, what he wanted, sorry. But she was at a complete loss. All she knew was that she was glad her son was close to her. So she didn't have to wonder where he was. Some reports indicate that once he put the boy beside his mother, he instructed the boy to roll over and act like he was asleep. Suddenly he forced Edie to roll onto her back. She figured he was about ready to rape her. But that's when he noticed she was on her menstrual cycle. That stopped him from proceeding because he made a comment saying he was disgusted by the fact that she was bleeding. Okay? Thank God sometimes, huh? Right, right, right. I mean, I never liked mine, but I'd have been glad I had one at that point. I don't like mine either. (laughs) Scott, when is it your time of the month? Every fucking day. (laughs) So, as he turned to walk out of the room, the the front door rang. Doorbell rang. Somebody had come to the house. In an interview later, the man said that it was what stopped him from returning to Dee Dee's grandmother's room to kill her like he had intended. Okay? Right, right. Yeah, so saved by the bell. I do say, I guess the saying is true. You can be saved by the bell. (laughs) So no matter what, whoever was at the door definitely didn't know what awaited them on the other side. Dee Dee hoped that the doorbell would frighten the intruders enough to... For them to sneak out the back door. Never in a million years would she have guessed they were going to do what they did next. Um, The next person to encounter the intruders was one of her twin sisters, Randy. 
Um, when she arrived at the house from visiting her father at the hospital she, and discovered the front door locked, which is unusual, she decided to ring the bell. After all, she knew that Dee Dee wouldn't have left their grandmother alone. So when the door opened, she expected to see her sister or her nephew. However, she was shocked to see that, a, that it was a man she had never seen before. Who, who was he and why was he in her house? As he opened the door, she noticed that he was smiling, but when she stepped over the threshold, he snatched her by the hair and pressed a gun to her head. He That's what formed... you got to do. You got to snatch him by the hair. Huh? Yep, to snatch him by the hair. It's not caveman style. And not snare him by the hatch. Snare him by the snatch. I was going to say, that made no sense, but thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> you know. Um... Do, 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 do. Um, he informed her that he was in the process of robbing the house and she better do what he said. When he shut the door behind them, as he ordered her to shut, he, he, he shut the door behind them and ordered her to shut his, her eyes. Randy did as she was told, and once her eyes were firmly closed, he shoved her. I mean, he grabbed her by the hair and shoved her up the stairs, just like he did her sister. She heard him talking to someone else who he referred to as, quote, John. Before he asked her if she had any money. She told him that she only had like five bucks and he forced her to give it to him. The man shoved her into the bedroom where Dee Dee and Bobby were lying on the bed, which happened to be her room. And she opened her eyes long enough to see her sister and nephew on the bed and noticed they were naked. She also quickly realized right away that the other, that other than being bound, they were relatively unharmed, which offered her some relief. After Randy told the man where he could find the five dollars, he ordered to remove ordered her to remove all of her clothes. She was so so shocked by his request, she said, "Hell no!" <laughs> when he suddenly pulled out the knife, she quickly thought better of it and removed her clothes. A then five he, dollar good deal for me getting naked right now, <laughs> right? Then he asked her if they were expecting anyone else. Thinking she could frighten him, she said that they were expecting quite a few people at any moment, but if he hurried, he could get away. Right? Her words didn't seem to faze him at all. Rather, he calmly set about tying her up and gagging her like he did her sister. He kept the knife nearby in an effort to keep her submissive, and she suddenly noticed that there was a boy standing close to him, just watching, and she began to feel completely humiliated. She didn't see the kid before. Suddenly, the man forced Randy to lie on her back, and she thought he was going to rape her. However, she, too, was on her menstrual cycle. Thank God for cycling in pairs. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. Wait a minute. When you women cycle, you give birth to pairs? No, but when we when we live together for a certain amount of time, our cycles sink. Oh, I thought, like, pears came out of your vag. I was like, That's kind of bizarre, man. You've never seen that? Yeah, I have. I'm just fucking with you. I was going to say, I mean, you've never seen pears come out of a woman's vag, Scott? Um, never pears. I've seen ping pong balls and pool balls. Ooh, what? Pool balls. Pool balls? That's a little... Yeah. That's a little hard to push out. Those are heavy. Hey, it's not my vagina. Thank God. <laughs> Although, I wish you had one for just one moment. Not me. I love being a dude. <laughs> hey, next time you're over in my area again, I'll have to take you by that statue. <laughs> um, anyways, he left the room but left the boy behind while he ransacked the house looking for any money and valuables. At some point, Randy could no longer hear what he was doing, so she couldn't determine she, she couldn't ascertain where he was in the house. 
She took that opportunity to try to wiggle out of her bindings. However, she stopped when she suddenly heard the doorbell ring again. The younger man left the room to go downstairs, and a short time later, Randy was horrified when she realized her mother had returned home. But her mother wasn't alone. She had returned with her twin sister, Retta, and Frank. Okay? So then, I'm going to try to, you know, go over this a little bit quickly, but um, basically what happened is he tied up um, Edwina and Retta, and left them in the living room, grabbed Frank, forced him, to, before he forced Frank downstairs, he had him on the floor in the front room. Uh-huh. And the, another doorbell rang. And they weren't expecting anybody at that point. But when the guy opened the door, they realized it was one of their, uh, Edwina's husband's nurses who had stopped by the house. Now, this is the thing. Um, hang on. Where is it? Oh, it says... One of the account, because her name was Maria Fashing, and she was one of the young nurses from the hospital. And after going through the reports of what happened next, they seemed to be two different accounts of what happened, right? The first account stated that the man forced Maria into the house, and when she was inside, she realized what was going on and stood at the man and told him to leave this family alone after what they had already been through, right? Because the dad in the hospital. Right, right, right. Right. The second account stated that she began admonishing him as soon as he opened the door. However, people have questioned this account because they can't explain how she knew what was going on. If if this is the true account, the mystery will never be solved. Either way, he forced her into the house and ordered her to do exactly as he said. And he forced her down next to Frank, made her lie face down across the other man's legs. And the entire time, she continued to berate him and ordered him to leave this family alone. Right? That chicken's got some balls. Because she was a small <laughs> little nurse. You'll see her picture. Hey, it's always the small girls. You ever notice that? Like, oh, yeah. Like you know what? Small was... girls are feisty. My yeah. best friend's daughter is like all of, what, maybe five foot two? And she's feisty, little bitch. Yeah, my ex-wife, the midget, she's like four three, man. And I tell you what, well, she you know, she'll like bite someone's I was ankles say, and shit. When you got an ankle biter, Scott. That's a chihuahua waiting to happen. Uh, she is. They're basically, she's like she's, she's a chihuahua, not chihuahua, a chihuahua that. Did you want to call her a twat? Baby, <laughs> she's a chihuahua on two legs instead of four. <laughs> you literally almost did it. Mm. Anyways, so. Then he, uh, for a short time after he had gotten her in the house, he forced Frank to get get up and walk downstairs to the basement. Now, Frank stood six foot three tall under normal circumstances. He would have been a threat. However, all of the women on the first floor were afraid of what the man with the gun was going to do to Frank down in the basement, right? As soon as he was downstairs, the intruder shoved a handkerchief into Frank's mouth, wrapped his head in tape, which I found out later was basic medical adhesive tape. You know, like they use for right. covering bandages, you yep. know, that come in those tin rolls. Oh, wow. Yeah. So in order to keep the tall man vulnerable, he was threatened with a knife. And then the other man pulled his pants down around his ankles. Right. What a way to keep a guy vulnerable. Right. <laughs> no shit, man. Yeah. Because so, you know what? If my hands are tied and my wax free, you never know what can happen. <laughs> But anyways, not long after the intruder pulled Frank's pants down, he heard the man bring Maria down to the basement as well. That was the same time the furnace kicked in and Frank couldn't hear anything else. At one point, he thought he heard some screams, but he wasn't sure because the noise of the furnace was in his ears. But although Frank couldn't hear what was going on, the rest of the house heard everything. 
they heard Maria shout out for them to call for help before she started screaming, I'm drowning, right? Then oh, there damn. was silence. It wasn't until the authorities arrived that, and they did an autopsy that they learned she had in fact drowned after her throat was cut, she drowned in her own blood. Jesus her Christ. Her weren't severed, so she was able to scream out as the blood spurted from her neck and filled her lungs. Jesus Christ, man. Isn't that horrible? That's fucked. Yeah, it's like, you know what? At least cut my vocal cords. <laughs> yeah, it was just, it was horrific. Now, um, so after they gathered all that information... A short distance from the house, a woman happened to be walking her dog when she saw a man and young boy run down a hill. She th- saw them stop at a puddle and do something before they ran off. Apparently, the man had removed his shirt and tie and threw them down on the ground before they left the vicinity. She notified the authorities about what she had witnessed, and they arrived and collected the shirt and tie. It was a small piece of evidence, yet later it would prove to be one of the most vital pieces. Because they noticed what looked like blood stains on the clothing items, they immediately begged them and sent them in for testing. Okay? When they searched around the puddle, they realized that someone had used it to wash some blood away. Beside the puddle in the mud, they saw a clear shoe print, and they immediately began collecting a cast. Okay? Now, back at the house, they worked the crime scene. They they gathered hundreds, I mean, lots of fingerprints that didn't belong to anybody in the house. Okay? Um, then... A group of law enforcement officials began canvassing the neighborhood. They managed to find a lot of people who had seen the man and boy earlier as well, but they also learned that nobody knew in the neighborhood knew who these guys were. And they had also been seen in Fort Lee, which is a nearby neighborhood. Apparently, they were in that area first. However, nobody in either area could ever identify who these guys were. So it's like, who the fuck are these two people, right? ghosts. It's like wondering who Batman is. You know what? I'm Batman. I'm Batman. I'm Batman. I'm the Batman. (laughs) We could go on forever. (laughs) So, as authorities spoke to witnesses in both neighborhoods, they learned about some of the tactics that the intruders were using. One witness told them that the boy had come and knocked on his door and asked him if that was where the Joneses lived. The police figured that this was so he could determine who was in the house, and they determined that the two men were simply out staking out various houses trying to find one to rob. Little did they know. So law enforcement officials interviewed a bus driver who informed them that two passengers got on his bus that day. He said they had a strange appearance and matched the, the composite descriptions. The driver went on to say that they rode the bus into New York and that they appeared to be in a rush. Apparently, it wasn't hard for the police to track the route the pair took from the park because um, they left a trail like Hansel and fucking Gretel. <laughs> That's yeah. fucking awesome. Yeah, they literally like dropped bracelets and watches <laughs> and the leather knife sheath and rings as they went, right? Where'd they go? Well, I think we're going to find these motherfuckers. Yeah, and the ni- they even found the knife nearby that and the blade matched the wounds on Maria. So, a short distance from where they found the knife, they discovered a 32 caliber revolver that had been thrown in some bushes. When they showed the gun to the Romaine family, they said, yep, that's the gun that threatened us. So, after Maria's autopsy, the medical examiner reported more wounds had been inflicted on her. I mean, and she was a small woman. Not only did he slice her throat, he'd also stabbed her below her left armpit, 
to penetrate her lung, which again, the drowning. God damn. And below her left breast, penetrating her heart. He also determined that she bled out, which was her official cause of death. Which is insanguination. I know. I just didn't want to give you a big word twice in a row. Keep going, smartass. <laughs> so when the authorities had the weapons they found tested, the lab couldn't trace them back to an owner specifically. However, they were able to determine that the shirt left behind by the man in the park had some had come from a clothing manufacturer in Philadelphia. They also found a laundry marking in the inside of the shirt. The letters were hard to decipher, but they managed to make out the letters K-A-L. Very vital here. So when Prosecutor McClure learned about the incident, he determined this couldn't have been the first time they got these two had done this, right? Mm-hmm. Because it seemed so calculated. So he... Um, released a description of the pair and it didn't take long for him to hear back about four separate cases in Maryland, New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Holy shit. Yeah. Each of the victims in those cases reported that when the man forced his way into the house, they all noticed A, a strange odor come from him and then the authorities determined that the pair's modus operandi MO was for the boy to approach the door and ask if the Joneses lived there and at the residence, and the man kind of remained back a little bit. Okay, the young in a if a young woman with a pretty figure answered the door, especially if she had children, the pair forced their way inside and used the children as leverage. Before they robbed the house, the man would tie the woman up, remove all of her clothes, and try to sexually assault her. You know, you got to pay extra for that at some places. I'm just saying, like Thailand, like Thailand. What, the forcing or the sexually assaulting? All of the above. Oh, just that, taking your clothes off Thailand. for I've sex. I've been to Korea, but never Thailand. And when I was in Korea, I had like platinum blonde hair and I was told not to talk to anybody. So You don't have platinum blonde hair now. We usually tell you not to talk to anybody. So nothing much has changed. You know what? That hurts. That's same, same. Same, same. 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 <laughs> Not, no, no. Same, same. Not, no, no. Same, same. <laughs> you know, I'll never forget when my nephew said no, no to me that one time. I was like, oh, my God, it's Scott. <laughs> <laughs> Scott's channeling himself through my nephew. <laughs> through my nephew. He's never met yet. <laughs> so, um, let's see. Three of the re- women reported that after the man tied them up... He forced them to perform oral sex on him. He tried to rape one of them, but wasn't successful. Hmm. Are you hinting? Are you getting what I'm thinking here? E.D. Are you are you picking up what I'm laying down, brother? I am, because he's not laying down the pipe. I can tell you that. <laughs> he's laying down silly putty. <laughs> oh, my God. I, I've missed this. <laughs> So, at one of the homes, the woman was expecting three other women from her bridge club to arrive. So, as each one entered the door, one by one, he forced them to remove their clothing. And then he posed them in humiliating positions. He forced one of the women to stare at his knife as if it was an extension of his penis. Another one was cut on her chest. 
After that, he and the boy fled the house with approximately $20,000 in stolen goods. God damn, that's yeah. a good haul. Yeah, no shit. And that's in the 70s. Well, yeah, that's a good haul, considering he's, you know. That's a good haul now, but he's yeah. Laying, he's laying down silly putty, so. <laughs> no shit, yo. So each time they fled, it was always on a bus. Despite the similar M.O., none of the crimes were connected until the fatal incident at the Romains when the the DA, the prosecutor McClure, tried to reach out to everybody. Right? Even though the authorities managed to collect several sets of fingerprints from the house, which were sent to the FBI, none of them could be identified. The only thing the police could do was wait and hope that someone turned the pair in before they hit another house. Unfortunately, they received a report that the pair chose to strike again. This time, it was in Margate, New Jersey, on January 14, 1975, less than one week later. However, there's a caveat here. Reports indicate that a woman called the authorities to report that a man with a strange odor coming from him had forced his way into her house with a knife. She also reported that there was a young boy with him, but they didn't steal anything. Considering they had just murdered a woman less than a week before that, law enforcement were shocked by their apparent boldness. However, when they did investigate that claim further, the call turned out to be a hoax. The woman had used reports from the incident um, in Leona to fabricate an attack on her. Therefore, it seemed like the police were back at square one in their investigation, right? But it's like, but you know that happens, right? Especially single old women. They will kind of, like, do things like that. Mm, they'll do a lot of things when they're old and lonely. Only you, Scott. Only you. <laughs> but, um, let's see here. How? Oh, wait. The lab had finished processing the, processing the shirt by then, and they determined that the entire laundry mark read the name Callinger, K-A-L-I-N-G-R, with one L. When the authorities ran that name through their system, they discovered that nobody with that name had a record in any of the towns, including New York and Philadelphia. Detective Roseman decided it was time for some good old-fashioned gumshoe detective work. You know, I don't even know if our detectives can do that now. No. (laughs) They're too reliant. So he took the shirt, went straight to the manufacturer in Philadelphia. From there, he learned that the company only sold their clothing to one outlet. The Berg Brothers stores located on North Front Street. Haven't you? You remember hearing about the Berg Brothers? Aren't they popular? Uh, maybe. I can't even fucking remember right now. Oh, maybe I'm thinking of something else then. Anyways, I'm not a man, so I don't buy men's clothing. Shut up, Scott. <laughs> I heard it before I even heard it. If the shirt fits, wear it. You know what? <laughs> so, Roseman went there next in hopes one of the clerks would remember selling the shirt to a dark-complected man with a weird odor. However, no one seemed to remember such a customer. He became disappointed, but he didn't let that stop him. Since that was the only place where the shirt could have been purchased, there was a chance the man lived somewhere in the vicinity, right? So, he decided to grab a, lo- a local phone book and look up the name Callinger with one L, which would have been a daunting task. But then, on a hunch, he called the local police department one more time. That time, he discovered that they did have a record for a man with that name, except it was for Callinger with two L's, not one. Okay? Now, that's important. (laughs) 
Now that the Roseman had the correct name, he went from one laundry service to the next until he was able to find someone who could give him the man's full name. It was Joe Callinger. Apparently, the man who owned Bright Sun Cleaners located on Front North Front Street was able to identify the shirt from its distinct odor. It was from a chemical that Joe used at his shoe repair shop because he was literally a shoe cobbler. Oh. Yeah. That, hence the name, the shoemaker. Oh, okay, yeah. That makes sense. That yeah. makes sense. So from there, Roseman found out that Joseph Callinger lived in the northeast Philadelphia neighborhood of Kensington, and he also had a shoe repair shop in the same neighborhood. That's how he earned the moniker, the shoemaker. Joseph was married with five children. And he was known by the authorities because one of his sons died mysteriously in 1974. How the hell do you have that many kids when he's not fucking, he's not laying pipe, he's laying putty? That's the thing. And we'll kind of get into that in the next episodes, but you'll find out. Aight. So since then, though, the police were keeping an eye on him because they knew if they waited long enough, he would slip up one day and they could arrest him arrest him because they had a strong suspicion he was involved in his own son's death. Now, the investigators working with the mysterious death case relayed the story to Roseman, which we'll get into in the next episode. Okay? Kai. Yeah. Isn't this one pretty good so far? So far, so good. This is the end of this first episode? This is it. Yeah. It's like, it's a very convoluted, twisted story that kind of like takes some thought. Yeah, no doubt. I'm yeah. not, that's why I'm staying quiet most. I'm listening to it. Whatever. You're over there texting and playing your games. Your little word game. Actually, I'm watching granny porn and midgets, but not together. It's terrifying granny midgets. All right, Hobgoblins. <laughs> little hobgoblins, man. Remember, you can send us an email at BrutalNation at TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check out the website at TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check us out on Medium Crime Media, Medium Crime Beat. Or wherever you get your blogs, just type in at Brutal Nation, we'll pop right up. This show's copyrighted 2022 by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights reserved. We will see you guys tomorrow. Bye-bye. Bye.